I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, everyone. This episode of An Eternity of Basketball is a part of the Globally Ballin Podcast Network, a subsidiary of the Globally Ballin Media Network. For this show and other shows like it, such as the Globally Ballin Podcast, as well as projects like it, such as original articles and video work, visit globallyballin.com now. You're listening to the newest episode of An Eternity of Basketball. In this episode, our hosts, Charlie, Sid, and Noel, are joined with former import, now head coach of the Moralco Bolts, Norman Black. Thank you for listening and enjoy. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe to it, as well as to give it a five-star rating and a review. We would greatly appreciate it. Now, to the show. So with our, our, our podcast is called An Eternity of Basketball. That's a joke, Pantada line. So, okay. so we're, we've been, we want to go uh, reminisce, do some nostalgia and everything about, about how it was back then in the PBA. I've been watching Joe a lot lately. Uh, yeah, they've been showing their games, the games on, on, on the so, Yeah, you know, and, and that's great because people are talking about it now. There's a lot of time to watch. So we, we'll jump right into it, Coach. I'm going to hit you with question number one right away. Okay. Uh, my, my question is, because you played in what we call the, the greatest era of, of, uh, of imports, 80s and 90s. And, and so I'll ask you right away, who are the best imports you played against, defensively, offensively? The best imports? Yeah. Uh, well, when I first came to the Philippines, the majority of the imports that were there in 1981, or here in 1981, 1982, 1983, these were probably the best players playing in the Continental League. Uh, there was one point where I think we probably had seven out of the top 10 scorers in the Continental League were actually playing here in the Philippines. So the Philippines was one of the few places that we could actually go and play professional basketball if we weren't playing in the NBA or if we weren't playing in the CBA. So it was good opportunities for us here in the Philippines. Uh, when I first arrived, I guess the best players I went up against were Al Green. Al Green mm. played he was a left-handed player. He's only 6'1", but he was very, very strong, very athletic. And he averaged about 25, 26 points a game in the Continental League. Lou Massey, who we call Machine Gun, because uh, he was pretty much unstoppable. Uh, his defense wasn't that great, but his offense was off the charts. I mean, neither myself or anybody else could stop him from scoring. And he was one of the top players coming out of, um, I think, North Carolina Charlotte, mm-hmm. where he went to school. And... Um, he came in here and he just set the set the league on fire with his shooting. Uh, of course, uh, Russell Murray, who was the best import in 1981, was a very very good player. And there were others that were very good also. But if you were to say who was the best import offensively that you faced and and defensively oh, as well, the best player in the best import player period for me, and it's only my opinion, was Billy Ray Bates. Uh, it's not that he did it that much better than everybody else, but he just did it very, very well, and he did it with a flair. And I had a long history with Billy. Uh, We played against each other a lot in the States. I knew him before we arrived here, and I had a lot of respect for him because in the CBA and the summer leagues in the East Coast, um, we went up against one another, and we had some battles. And he should have been a star professional player in the NBA, if you ask me. That's how how talented he was, but he did have some off-the-court problems he had to solve, which he had a lot of problem solving and um, <laughs> yes yes Billy was the type of player I always tell this story he was the type of player that um I could go to sleep at 11 o'clock prepare myself for the game eat well Billy probably could stay out to three in the morning and still come in and score 60 points that's how good he was I mean he was just a great player offensively and he could lock you up defensively too I remember there was one time that um in 19 uh I guess it was 83. Um, we were out in the Solaris Hotel. You guys remember the Solaris Hotel? Solaris Hotel, yes. Yes, yes down yes. on the Boulevard. <laughs> and we had a disco there called right. the Star Ether. 
Stargazer. Yes. You guys might be a little bit too young for this, but. No, that's no, the one with the elevator. Yeah, that's the one with the elevator that you can see the whole Ross Boulevard. That's correct. Yeah, you got yeah. it. Uh, one night we were in there, and it was about seven of us. All seven of the ten imports were there, and we were all talking and drinking beer, and you know, having a good time. And you know, Billy's just going off on all the imports, talking about, "Hey, I'll score on you. I'll dunk on you. I'll get fifty <laughs> on you." And then he got to me, and I just said, "Billy, hold up, stop it already, because you know, I can't stop you, but you certainly can't stop me." So. Let's call it speed. Let's call it neutral, okay? So right. he left me alone that night, but he got on everybody else. And I mean, he was just a spectacular player. For me, he probably was, was the best player ever to play while I was here. And of course, um, there were others that were really great. I mean, you're talking about um, Bobby Ray Parks, uh, who I actually recruited here in the Philippines, who went on mm -hmm. to win seven Best Import Awards, uh, Michael Hackett, uh, Michael Young, uh, David Thurkill. There's some guys who didn't stay that long, but were also very, very good players like Carlos Briggs, yeah. uh, Dexter Schaus, uh, Michael Young. Uh, I might have mentioned Michael's name already, but Michael Young. Jose um, Slaughter. There were guys that were here when I first arrived that were really great players. Larry McNeil, uh, Andy Fields. I mean, right. some of the guys that don't really get noticed too much. Um, probably the guy that went under the radar for me who was just totally unstoppable in the States um, was Jackie Dorsey. You guys mm -hmm. might not remember Jackie Dorsey, but he was pretty much unstoppable. He led okay. the CB yeah. in scoring yeah, and rebound. For Gilby's, right. That's correct. So um, there were some great players during that time. And I think it was because we didn't really have that many opportunities to play overseas. I mean, the jobs in Italy and France and some of the bigger countries who had, had basketball leagues at that time, uh, they were recruiting the, the ex-NBA players, the guys who were retiring, and then they would go overseas and play over in Europe. Um, but for us, uh, the Philippines was one of the major places we could go. The Philippines and Australia were two of the leagues that we could go and play right away and, and gave us a, a good opportunity to, you know, further our careers and earn money outside of the CBA or outside of the NBA. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think Noel wants to jump right into your first stint in, in the Philippines. Noel? Well, you know, you're supposed to, you're, you weren't supposed to play for Teflin. You're supposed to yeah, play for yeah. great taste. So what happened, uh, and, and did, could, you, could you tell us about what could have happened? If you had joined Great Taste in 81, you would have won a championship right off the bat. Yeah, Great Taste had a pretty good team. That's why when um, they decided, I think they got Lou Massey instead of me, I believe. Yes, and, uh, yes. They, they had a good team that year in 81. Uh, this is the story. I played for the Detroit Pistons in the LA Summer League. We were out there for about one month training and playing in the league. And we get to the last game. I'm not really playing that much. I'm only playing about 15 minutes a game. Not really scoring that much, maybe four or five points a game. Um, I had an opportunity to go back with the Pistons to veterans camp, but they wouldn't guarantee me any money. So that was giving me problems because, you know, it's hard to go back and go through the entire camp like I did the year before with the, with the Bullets. And then at the end of the camp, two days before the season started, I got taken out of the team. So then you left to go back in the CBA once again. So I wasn't really feeling that, to be quite honest with you. So after our last game in the summer league with the Pistons, the Detroit Pistons, um, this is where the, all the NBA teams would, would, would send their teams during the summer. It wasn't an official league like it is now in Vegas, but they still had a league where all the NBA teams used to participate. After my last game, it's over. I'm getting ready to head back to Baltimore, where I'm from. And all of a sudden, a guy walks up to me on the court, huh? as I'm walking off the court, and asks me if I want to play in the Philippines. And for some reason, you know, my first instinct was, no, I don't want to play in the Philippines. I want to play for the Detroit Pistons. That's why I'm here. And it turned out it was Jimmy Mariano, who just approached me right after the game and asked me if I wanted to play there. And I, I told him, no, I didn't really want to play there, but I would keep it open. I'd keep open mind about it. And, uh, I went home, like I tell this story, I looked it up in the encyclopedia of the Philippines, found out where it was, found out there was warm weather, found out that um, there were bases here, so there were English-speaking people here also, almost all the Filipinos spoke English, and I, I had played a short stint in Venezuela, where we won a championship with the, actually with the national team in Venezuela, and with the U.S. national team, where I was a member of the team, and Nobody spoke English there. So when I found out everybody spoke English in the Philippines, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe it might be nice to go there because in, in Venezuela, I couldn't speak to anybody. I couldn't communicate with anybody. So it wasn't exactly, it was a great experience on the court, but not off the court because I just couldn't communicate with people. 
up in um, uh, Valencia, Venezuela. So um, I go home, I study it. I look in the encyclopedia. I said, maybe this is a good opportunity. I talked to the head coach of the Detroit Pistons and, and um, they told me that they were gonna invite me back to camp, but they weren't gonna guarantee me any money. The amount they were gonna guarantee me was very, very small. So I said to myself, why don't you just do the same thing you did the last, last year and then just go to play in the Philippines for four months, which is what they were offering, and then come back, go back to the CBA and try to get back to the NBA again, like you did last year. At least you'll have some money in your pocket this time after playing in the Philippines. My problem was when I called Jimmy Mariano to tell him I was interested, he told me he had already gotten Dumasi. As you know, that, you know how that turned out. He ended up being yeah. great. Um, I said, okay, well, it was, it was an offer, but it's, it's no longer there. So I'll just prepare myself for veterans camp and go back to veterans camp with um, the Detroit Pistons. And maybe about four or five days later, I got a call from uh, the manager of the Teflon team, Frank Hahn. And uh, he asked me if I could play for Teflon. And I took advantage of the opportunity. I said yes. And that's how I arrived in the Philippines. And then, of course, one of the assistant coaches of Teflon was actually um, future commissioner June Bernardino. Um, how your relationship started out with that? And probably that indirectly also got you into broadcasting after your days as an import were over. I credit June Bernardino with teaching me how to be a Filipino. That's what I credit him for. When I first arrived, the first thing he did was I spent almost every evening at his house. I ate dinner at his house. I ate dinner with his family. He had a young family at that time. And That's near Charlie's place. <laughs> he was the one who would take me around and tell me the best restaurants to go to. And uh, he really taught me how to be a Filipino. I mean, normally an American, if you go to someone's house and they ask you to eat, and you don't like the food, you don't eat. It's as simple as that. You beg off or whatever. But he taught me that in the Philippines, you can't do that. If the Philippines <laughs> offer you the hospitality to eat you, you have to eat their food. Even if it's not familiar to you, even if you don't like it, you still have to eat it. So find the best thing that you can eat and just eat, okay? Otherwise, <laughs> you end up and get assaulted. And so I learned a lot of things from him right from the very, very beginning. And um, and, then, and that's like, the reason they call the Philippine Cup the June Bernardino Trophy, right? When you win it three times, right? Okay. That's correct, yeah. That's Bernardino correct, yeah. He, he, was, um, he was a, really an ambassador for the league. That's why he went on to be the, the uh, commissioner of the league. That's great. So, Coach, if you had joined, if you had joined uh, Great Taste, you know, because Sid is a Great Taste fan. So, yeah. if you had joined Great Taste, he would have gotten his championships earlier than, 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 yeah. than the... the Maddie Victorino, Chosison, that was a loaded team. I was a Toyota fan first before I became a Great Taste fan. When Toyota disbanded, that's the only time I shifted my allegiance to, uh, to Great Taste. Uh, but by that time, Toj, I think you were with, uh, were you still with Great Taste 84? I don't think. Alaska. You were with Alaska. I had to stand up no. 84 because. San Miguel and then Great Taste, right? San Miguel, then Alaska, right? 84? I had to sit out in 84 because of the height limit. Oh, okay. Right, right. Height limit. And I don't think we would have won in 81 anyway. Because if I remember <laughs> correctly, Toyota and CRISPR, they were powerhouses in 1980. They were still there. They were still there. They were still the two teams that couldn't be stopped. And they were the teams you had to really deal with if you wanted to try to win a championship. But I did have a lot of success against those two teams when I first arrived. But um, we were not able to win any type of championship. We made it to the quarterfinals for the first time in the playoffs. And for the first time, Teflon actually beat Toyota. Yeah. It's unbelievable because I remember the next day it was like early Christmas for Teflon. You know, that's <laughs> how big of a it was. We actually beat Toyota in 1981. You, you hardly had problems. You played well against everybody when you first came, Coach. I mean, for your first five or six years, you played well against everybody. But I have a question. If you were, if you had a choice to have uh, certain Filipino players, local players as your teammates, uh, you can name three never were your teammates, but you would have wished to play with them, who would they be? Well, I probably would have asked to play with the guys that had to guard me, <laughs> so I wouldn't have to go up against them anymore, like okay, Chito Lozaga okay. and Abby King and, and Philip Cesar. Uh, they were yeah. three of the better defenders back in those days. They normally were assigned to guard me whenever we went up against them. 
number one would be Sonny Jaworski. I would have loved to play with Sonny. You know, I had this little, you know, it wasn't something that we'd ever talked about, but you know, it got to the point where if Sonny was within two or three feet of me, I was trying to hit him already because I knew <laughs> he ran past me. And, you know, my whole thing was, you know, I'm going to hit first before I get hit because I know this guy's going <laughs> to He's going to take the ball out of bounds and bump into me. He's going to do something to rile me up. But I, I really wish I could have played with him. Um, okay. That would have, that would have definitely have been a pleasure. Uh, the other guy was Francis Arnice. Mm -hmm. I was always one, amazed. One of my favorites. One of my favorites. I was always amazed by Francis Arnice. I couldn't believe how a five ten guard could come through the lane and shoot a finger roll from the foul line and consistently. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. I mean, I just thought he was very, very talented for his size, and, and he could easily get to the basket anytime he wanted. Uh, he was almost like a Johnny Abrientos before Johnny came along. Mm -hmm. The other guy I probably would have wanted to play with just because he just had so much confidence, and I just couldn't understand where that confidence would come from was Atoy Ko. Yes. Atoy, <laughs> Atoy was the type of player that would be out on a fast break, nobody in front of him, then he would stop from the foul line and take a foul shot. Right. Jump shot and make it. Okay. And then you just say to yourself, what is wrong with this guy? He had a wide open layup. He stops at the foul line, takes a jump shot from the foul line, and fouls at everybody. Did he want to go all the way? I mean, some of these guys had personality, they had character, and you could understand why the PBA was so popular back in those days. Uh, my question now, coach, is that. After your days as an import rover in 85, you actually started coaching already as a playing coach for the San Miguel franchise. Then you somehow wound up becoming a broadcaster. And, and here's a name that, here's a, a term you probably haven't heard in decades. Uh, the Burlington Halftime Show. Basketball. How did that come about? Basketball. Tips. Burlington Basketball. Yeah. Right. What? Exactly. Well, my, my, um, I did some guesting, I think, uh, maybe back as, as early as maybe 83, 84, um, on the telecast as one of the guest analysts. And I actually wrote the scripts for the, the Anchorman and the wow. Animals for games. I didn't know that. Because yeah. in 1984, I did not play. And Bobong Velez, who was the, um, our boss back in those days, he was the one who actually said, hey, would you want to work with the telecast? We can bring you on sometimes as um, a guest analyst, and we can also give you some work in the office if you want. So I was writing the scripts wow. for Copatada and Pinkoy Pinson and, wow. and Walker. Well, we didn't know that. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I went to school for English broadcasting, so it was some kind of in my major, um, how I grew up in my education. But um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I loved being a part of the telecast. And then all of a sudden, a sponsor came along, Burlington Sox. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to do some type of halftime um, half show where they could obviously advertise their socks. But it was, it was a teaching type program where you teach any type of um, dribbling, passing, shooting, whatever it may be, rebounding, you would teach that type of skill. And it only lasted for five minutes during the halftime. Then it went down to three minutes. But at the same time, it's something that I became well known for around the Philippines because then I think people knew me more for that than they did for my basketball ability. <laughs> that's not true, but yeah, that, 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 became, very, that became very popular. Well, combination, okay, combination. But the basketball tip were definitely uh, something to look for. You'd stay on the air at halftime just to watch the basketball tip. So that's, yeah. that's, but something, I used to that's something we try to do. Until yeah, I used to have people to come up to me and go, um, uh, I'm Norman Black for Burlington basketball tips. I mean, out of the clear blue sky, they would just say that to me. I mean, it's yeah. something that they definitely yeah, yeah. remember. My brother and I used I have to. A, to I have that. a confession to make. When I was in high school, my high school classmates videotaped me and I was imitating you. And yeah, my lesson that time was bench warming, you know, as, uh, <laughs> how, to, how to look cool on the bench. Yeah, how to look cool on the bench, you know, I'm still looking for that videotape. If I find it, I'm going to send it to you. <laughs> Coach, Coach Norman, uh, my last question to you uh, as a player, actually. You won the, the Mr. 100%, the first one to ever receive that award. But um, I talked to some of the players that you went up against during that time. The only thing that's not 100% about Norman Black is his free throw shooting. Yeah, that was, that was an issue for you uh, when, when, you were, when you were playing. Talk about that. 
I was never really a great free throw shooter. And I always felt it was a little bit because I started playing so late. I didn't start playing basketball until I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And everything I learned, I learned on the playground. So I never really learned how to shoot a set shot. I learned how to shoot the jump shot. If you remember how I played, I used to right, just right. jump on three shots, yes, try to yes, shoot, over yes. you and shoot, it, shoot it in your face. But you learn that in the playground. I mean, most young kids, when they start out at age five, six, seven, eight, they, they start off with set shots, set shots. But with me, I learned uh, very late. And I thought that was to my disadvantage. There were some years I actually shot well in college. I, one year I shot over 80%. Even one year, in, you know, here in the Philippines, I shot over 80%. But the majority of the time, I was 66 67%. The only advantage I had was I shot a lot of foul shots. Yes. I averaged about 12 a game, oh, so yeah. I fouled a lot. So uh, it ended up, I ended up making eight anyway, eight out of 12 or nine out of 12, whatever it may be. But that was never my strength. My strengths since high school was always my ability to rebound the basketball. Yeah, you know, I, I was always a good rebounder. I was a leading rebounder in high school, leading rebounder in college. And and when I first came to the Philippines, I think my first year, I probably averaged about 24 rebounds a game. Mm-hmm. And that was always my strength. So I always tell people, and that's not to downgrade anybody or anything, but I was a good player, but I wasn't a great player. I had my weaknesses. I had my faults. Sure could have fooled us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coach, you had the chance to uh, to uh, play against and maybe with, because I think they were on your team at one point, uh, b- both of them. We're talking about Abit Gidab and, and Ramon Fernandez. So these guys have been swapped yeah. for each other twice or thrice in their PBA careers. They were always uh, touted as the two best centers. Um, how do you compare these two players, Gidab and Fernandez? There are differences, there are similarities? Well, I had a lot of success with both of them. Um, mm-hmm. I won two championships in, um, and well, I won one championship in 1988 with uh, Abigail Dobbin, and of course, we won in 1987 with, with Bobby Parks. He was our import at that time. So I won a couple of championships with Abbott. And I was actually a little bit shocked that um, Mr. Nono Ibaceta, who was the manager of the, uh, uh, well, actually, he was the board of governor of the San Miguel team back in, in the, those days, he came to me and said, um, We have a we have a possible trade, Abbott for Mon Fernandez. And anybody who knows my story with Mon Fernandez knows that we had a, quite a few battles over the years. And this was already 1988, and I came here to the Philippines in 1981. So we have been battling each other and hitting each other and calling each other names for so many years. Mon was actually a player coach for Pure Foods at that time, and I was That's a player right. coach for San Miguel. And we were winning with Abbott. We just won a championship with me as an import. And Bobby Parks, he did conference before, and then the 88 first conference, we won with me, and Abbott was part of that team, too. And all of a sudden, we're going to trade Abbott Gudabit. How can you possibly do that? But uh, Mr. Ibaceta thought that that was a good idea, that we do that. He thought, you know, over the long run, it would um, be better for the team. Um, I know that, that Abbott was having some issues with his contract, and we decided to make that trade, and we pushed through with that trade. Abbott was one of the best big men ever to play in the PBA. I mean, mm-hmm. he was just great. I mean, he could play offense. He could play defense. He could block shots. Um, he, he was a good foul shooter for a big guy. And it was hard to trade him. But in Mon Fernandez, uh, <laughs> it speaks for itself. Mon Fernandez, in my mind, is, um, and I hope all the uh, June, Jumar Pajardo fans don't <laughs> In my mind, he's the best player ever to play in the PBA. And I say that mainly because I'm always into production. I know Jumar has been very productive, and Jumar is great, by the way. I coached against him in college. I know how good he is. Um, but Mon has led the league in scoring, rebounding, assists, steals, blocks, you name it. He's led the league in it. He holds the record for most championships of any player in the PBA. So until Jumar can, you know, maybe accomplish yeah. all those things. Um, I don't think he'll get any objections here, not in this group. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) Mon came in for us in that third conference of 1988. And we actually um, played against him in the second conference, all Filipino. Uh, Like I said, Mon was a player coach. And, you know, I didn't know really what to think about Mon because we had been battling so many years. Um, He called me some names that I can't repeat right now, but. (laughs) <laughs> and we called each other names over the years. But when I met him in practice for the first time, I sat down with him and I told him, you know, I know we've had our differences, we've had our battles, but 
hey, let's just go out and try to win games. To my surprise, he said, okay, coach, let's get it done. Let's go out and get it done. And the thing that shocked me most about Mon Fernandez is, you know, the elegant shot, Keely Keely shot, you know, the El Presidente shot. He had all these different type of shots that had names for them. He actually practiced those shots. It wasn't like it was just happening in the game. This guy was a hard worker in practice. He got on the court and he practiced his skills. That's why he was as good as he was. And, you know, we went on to win maybe the next, I don't know, maybe seven out of nine championships like that uh, with him. We went on to win the Grand Slam. We won that third conference where I actually played as an import. I actually played with Juan Fernandez for one conference and we beat Shell in the finals. And um, he turned out to be a great teammate. And we had a lot of success with him. So yes. both guys were very, very good. I would give the edge to Mon mainly because he was more productive. But but Abbott was a hell of a player. He was a good player. Okay, my, my last question for this session, Coach, because we have to end this session because there's four minutes left. Then we have to just log in again and send you the okay. new password. But my last question is, 1989, if you don't have Mon Fernandez, do you still win the, the Grand Slam? You That's have Abbott. That's a question. Um, could we have won with uh, Abbott Gudabin? Who knows? Maybe we could have. But certainly, you know, Mon just, he just brought so many skills to the table. I mean, he could not only score the ball, he could rebound the ball, he could block shots, he could assist just like he was the point guard. He could bring the ball up the court whenever the other team was pressuring my guards. I mean, he was just a multi-talented player who probably pushed us over the top. So, you know... <laughs> you think about it, you got to give a lot, of, a lot of credit to Nuno Ibaceta because that was a pretty good trade he made. Yeah, Coach, I think a lot of uh, young people now don't realize just how good Mon and Abbott were. I've been watching the PBA Rush, their, their games on PBA Rush the past couple of weeks, and the way they brought up the ball, dribbled, and... Uh, and Gidabin was so they imposing. Were, they were really ahead of their time. Um, would, would you agree? Yeah, they, they, they could still play in this uh, era and still excel. Uh, would you agree with that? Well, I think I could still play if I was in this era. <laughs> so why not them? I mean, uh, like in my case, you know, I, I was a pretty good player in the States. I didn't just become good when I got to the Philippines. So, you know, why would I not be able to do it today? Maybe I would, would have been bigger, stronger. Um, guys today, they're more into weightlifting. They eat you know, better, they eat better food, they they have personal trainers. Well, if I was in day to day, I would have all those things also, the advantages that the players have today. But there's no question in my mind, talent is talent. And Mon Fernandez and Abby Dobbin were very talented players and they could definitely play today. And they would be bigger and they would be stronger. Because a lot of people say, well, look how thin they were, they weren't. Well, yeah. let Mon Fernandez hit you a couple of times, and you'll find out how he <laughs> Think back in those days, how Mon played against those NBA teams when they came to the Philippines. Right, right. He played really, really well. It wasn't like his size had any detriment at all as far as his ability to go up against those guys. So why would he not be able to do it today? Like I said, he just probably would be a little bit bigger because he probably would lift more weights. He probably would eat a little bit better. Probably get a little bit more sleep. Oh, and, and, and coach, you know, people tend to underestimate, and I think the younger guys don't understand how smart this guy was. Oh yeah, Mon, Mon, Mon just had it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to convince me. Yeah, I want the younger guys. It's the younger guys we're trying to convince. You know, a lot of the guys that we actually, our colleagues, the younger commentators, and everything, they they can't understand this thing that we have for Mon Fernandez, and and. and and a lot of the other guys back then, they never saw these guys play. Do you realize some people even question how good was Michael Jordan? <laughs> wow. Think about that. I mean, yeah, if anybody who grew up with Michael Jordan would say, are you serious? I mean, uh, Julius Irving? They yeah. question how good he was? I mean, no doubt. No doubt everything's relative. You know, if you were great then, you could be great today. Uh, yeah, the 89 Grand Slam, and if you had won with Abbott, um, I think that would be a good segue, Coach. Uh, we've talked uh, so far about your playing career as an import, uh, but then you were you uh, you started coaching uh, mid 80s and all throughout the 90s and up to now. Um, 
what was your uh, your biggest challenge when you first uh, became a head coach here here in the Philippines? Uh, did you did you encounter some resistance from the local guys? Did you did you feel you had to prove yourself uh, when you first uh, became a coach? Well, I, I started coaching in 1985. Uh, I also played that year, so I was actually a player coach. And I remember um, being called to the office of Mr. Dandy in Kawako about seven in the morning with the idea that I thought I was going to be brought back as their import again to play in the 1985 season, only to be told that he was offering me the job to be player coach. Now, at that time, there was one player coach in the league already, and that was Sonny Jaworski. Yeah. So I became the second player coach. And it was something I didn't really know what to expect. Things became a lot easier for me because I was still playing and I was still productive. I was still putting up the points and the rebounds and it became a lot easier as a coach because I led by example. In other words, it was easier for me to get the players to follow me because I was putting up 40 and getting 20 rebounds a game. So um, sometimes it, it, in that situation, it wasn't really about my coaching ability because I was just a new coach. It was more about the fact that I was leading the team on the court. And I also had Derek Pumarin as my assistant coach at that time. And his father, Pilo Pumarin, was the consultant. So I relied on those two guys an awful lot when the games were going on. Because if you remember me as a player, I, I averaged 48 minutes a night. So I didn't really sit on the sideline very much. And I had to rely on Derek a lot to do a lot of the coaching, particularly with the substitutions as the game was going on. And it was real difficult in the beginning. But what I started to do was to just go back over the years from my high school to my college to my stint in the Philippines under uh, Tommy Minotalk and under Baby DeLupin because I played for those guys. And I started to develop my own coaching style and I started to develop how I wanted to see the team run both offensively and defensively. And I've always been a good defensive player even back in high school. So I really wanted us to be a very good defensive team at the same time, my strength as a player was my ability to run, my conditioning. So I wanted to make sure my teams were in good shape and that we could run up and down the floor and average a lot of points per night. So um, I just took my own personality and just, you know, limped it to the team. And that's how I really developed my coaching skills in the very beginning. When I stopped playing, obviously things became a little bit more difficult because, you know, you no longer could rely on your playing ability. And I really had to go out there and start to define the way I wanted to coach the basketball game. And I had to start to continue to learn from other coaches so I could develop my coaching skills also. Well, you were also blessed to have probably some of the greatest players to ever play on, on your team. You had the guys like Hector Calma, you had the Samboy Lim, Ives um, Dignadisa, eventually Abit Gidabin, then Mon Fernandez, and later on, Alan Kaidik. So uh, what was the pressure like with these you knew they were going to be Hall of Famers one day. And uh, what was the pressure like to deliver a championship with this, uh, with this kind of quality of players? Well, you forgot a couple of great players. Uh, Ricky I Brown know, I know. Uh, <laughs> there's Charlie, there's Charlie. Yes, you forgot those two guys. But, um, well, I always say that, yeah, they ended up being great players, but we all grew up together. Um, we all accomplished something together. Um, in other words, uh, we were good players when we first started, but because of what we were able to accomplish together as a team, we became known as being great players over the years. And that was basically because of our winning. I mean, you can be the greatest scorer in the world, you can be a good rebounder, but if you really want to be known as one of the better players out there, then you have to win games. You have to be part of a winning team. You're going to have to be known as a player who wants to go out and take his skills and blend it with other guys to just win basketball games. And I always say during that stretch where we won so many championships with San Miguel, that was really what that team was all about. It wasn't about individual skills. I mean, if it was individual skills, Sam Boyd probably would have been our best player every conference because individually he was just so skillful and talented and athletic. But it was about team, putting all our skills together to win basketball games. And, and that was the key. That's why in the end, yeah, Hector Kama was a great player, and so was um, Franz Pumarin and Sam Boy Lim and Elmer Reyes and all those guys, Ives Dignadice, who I thought was one of the most underrated defensive players ever to play in the league. Um, 
these guys ended up being great players because they played on a great team. Welcome back, Charlie. You're back. Technical, technical problems. Yeah, I think Charlie. Right, uh, but Noel, you wanted, you said you're going to ask about some game stuff. Yeah, well, actually, uh, you said you always wanted to play uh, with uh, Sonny Jaworski, but you ended up being his first assistant in the first ever all PBA team that went to the Asian Games in 1990. What was that experience like? And what was that like winning the silver medal for your now adopted country, the Philippines? Well, that was a great experience for me. Uh, like I said, I had some wars with Sonny, but I always respected him as a player because um, he always played hard and mm -hmm. more so than ability, I always respected guys who go out and gave their best every game. Um, I always felt like for the fans, that's pretty much all they really want. They want to see that you'll go out and kill yourself on the court whenever you're out there playing in front of them. That's why they pay their money to watch the games. And I felt that was one of the reasons why Sonny became so popular because of the way he played every single game. He would go out and give everything he had on the basketball court, and you could never feel like you were shortchanged after watching him play. Okay, you may not like him. You may love him. Of course, there was a hate-love relationship with Sonny over the years with the fans, but you had to respect the way he played. And that was a good experience for me. Uh, Reno Salazar was also part of that coaching staff um, back in 1990 when we went to Beijing, China. I had to live with those guys for three weeks <laughs> in the Dominion. Uh, Sonny was an amazing person because Sonny actually brought dumbbells on the trip with him so he could lift weights that day in the room. Who does that, right? <laughs> but Sonny Jaworski, he had to do his little routine every day of his weightlifting and then his sit-ups and his push-ups as something he just had to do. So um, I learned to respect him a great deal. It was very tough circumstances as far as I was concerned because we put the team together very quickly and, you know, we, we flew to, to Beijing, China to play but we didn't know what we were up against, but to play a very powerful Chinese team. And even though we got the silver, silver medal, it was a little bit hollow because you know, we lost by large amounts against the Chinese team. But it's something I'm still proud of. It's one of the best finishes <coughs> we've ever had in the Asian Games, getting that silver medal. And um, it was my first year as part of the national team. And I told myself after that, that I would always be available whenever the national team would need my services. So uh, I, th I think I've served the national team <laughs> since then. And then in 1994, you were, on, you were at the helm. Yeah, that was heartbreaking. I mean, just totally heartbreaking for me and for the team for that matter. Um, it was one of those situations where what a difficult um, job, um, putting a team together pretty much two weeks before the tournament having some of the players not even arrive to join the team until we were there in Hiroshima, Japan, because some of them were still playing in the playoffs here in the PBA. And that was tough. And then to get to that last second where we could get that bronze medal and one of our best foul shooters ever, um, see um, Alvin Patrimonio misses the two foul shots and we lose the game, we end up coming in fourth place. So yeah. that's life. I mean, it happens like that sometimes, but once again, it was a good experience. Um, was a little upset with the Japanese uh, organizers then because even in the game before the championship, um, not the championship, order, but the battle for third place, the bus driver got, got lost. And we, wow. drove around for about a, wow. we drove around for about an hour and a half not being able to find the gym right before we are playing <laughs> Japan for third place. Wow. Magic and, stuff, uh, huh? And I always said to myself, you know, you know, you know how that happens, Coach. We remember. I, I couldn't hear you. Do you remember what happened to us in 2015, right? In Changsha. Yeah. Oh, Changsha was the same thing. I mean, I the bus driver actually rode up the wrong side of the street in an eight lane street, you know? <laughs> so we were going to die. <laughs> Uh, but this was really interesting because we had no problems getting to the game the entire tournament. Then the game we were going to play Jap the Japanese team for third, all of a sudden it takes us an hour and a half to get to the arena. And that wasn't a great experience. I was always saying to myself, once the Japanese get to the Philippines, we should try something like that with them. But, you know, with our <laughs> traffic the way it is, <laughs> there's no way you can do that. Because <laughs> you're going to be in traffic for an hour and a half anyway, no matter what. 
Well, there, there's one there's one anecdote I remember um, because in 1997-98 you were actually the head coach of Pop Cola alongside Al Francis Chua who was your longtime deputy as well with uh, I believe you uh, uh, were with him in Santa Lucia as well but there was one game I don't know if you gentlemen remember this in 1998 Norman Black had to play as an import for one game otherwise the PBA would find Pop Cola because their import uh, I don't know what happened to your import there, Coach. You, you fill in the blanks on this one, but you played in 1998 for one game as an import under Coach Al Francis Chua for Pop Cola. Tell us about that experience. Our import, I, you know, his name escapes me right now, and probably because of what he did. <laughs> but <laughs> he said he had to go home. Chose to forget. He said he had to go home back to Australia because he had a custody case for his kid. And we had a break of about a week. So he said he had to go home just to, to handle the custody case. He would be right back. And uh, we said, yes, we allowed him to go. And he was a pretty good kid. He played pretty well for us. So we were playing for third place. So, you know, he did pretty well in the tournament. And then he didn't come back. He never came back to the Philippines. So all of a sudden, I think they were going to find us 300,000 pesos for not having an import or something. And, and um, at that time, I, even though I was old already, uh, the management under Elmer Yanga asked me if I would be able to play one game. And I said yes to it. And uh, after the game, I wish I had said no, but <laughs> I played anyway. I think I ended up getting maybe, I don't know, 10 or 12 points and 15 rebounds or something. And we ended up beating Shell for third place. Yeah, that was against Ronnie Masanov and Chris Jackson and Benji Paras. But I've never told this story before. I'll tell it now. I could actually still play a little bit back in those days, even though I was 39 years old. But at the same time, I was no longer a player. You know, I wasn't playing on a regular basis, but I could still jump. So in warm-ups, I figured I'd show off a little bit. I go up and I do a 360 dunk and I come down, slam it really hard. I'm really proud of myself. And then I hit the floor and something <laughs> happened. I felt something in my knee. And I said, oh, my gosh, what have I just done? Just showing off out here. I just ruined my whole return to basketball because I was never the same player the entire game. I got through the game. After the game, my knee swelled up on me. And I just said to myself, this is it. I will never come back and play in the PBA again. It's way, way beyond me already. But um, I actually hurt myself in warm-ups in that game, if you can believe that. <laughs> I actually did that game, so I remember very clearly because – from first quarter to third quarter, I was just telling Norman Black stories the whole time until the fourth quarter came around because now it gives you the opportunity, hey, you know, I can look back at this guy's 17-year PBA career as a player over three quarters. And uh, thank you for giving me that opportunity to, to become a Norman Black biographer for at least one game. <laughs> and, you know, that was a good thing for me because uh, if we had lost – I would have asked myself, even up to now, why did I play? <laughs> yeah, right, right. It was just a good thing. Yeah, we and you won in a close game, too. So that was, that was good. Yes, out. that's right. Well, you've, you've coached throughout a couple of generations of players already. I mean, several generations of players already. You've seen how the game has evolved, Coach. If the imports and the players of the 80s and early 90s played in today's game, you know, no illegal defense, different sort, uh, kinds of defenses, they call the touch fouls now and all this and that. How different would it be for them, for you guys? Well, I know as an import, it would be a little bit different because you weren't allowed to play illegal defense when I played, when I first came to the Philippines. Yeah. So what they used to do is just right. double team you right away. So players like myself and Billy Ray and Lou Massey and some of the other guys who scored a lot of points, um, we got double teamed every time we touched the ball. Uh, I think we probably would have a little bit more freedom now because now it's more of a zone defense and we would probably be able to at least engage our men individually before we pick up the, the extra player uh, because before the player would be there as soon as you receive the ball. So you're double teamed as soon as you receive it already. So that would be a big difference as far as how the game would be played defensively. Um, I always believe it doesn't really matter what era it is. Uh, you will adjust. In other words, uh, the fact that we now have zone defense basically is what we can play defensively. You would adjust to that. Offensively, you would adjust to that. You may have to become a better perimeter shooter. 
because you're not going to be able to get to the basket as much as you were you could before if you weren't if you would were be guard, being guarded one on one. But at the same time, you'll just adjust to the game. That's what it's all about. Quality players will adjust. That's why I always say the players that played before, Mon Fernandez would adjust to this game. He would not have any choice. But his talent will always shine and will always come out. Coach, uh, coach uh, I have a question about uh, Santa Lucia. When you first won your championship with Santa Lucia, Chris Tan hit, hit the winning basket. How did that, how did that uh, you know, complete your, your circle um, um, as from player coach, and now you see Chris Tan emerging as, uh, as a hero? Yes, it's interesting over the years. I mean, you know, Chris is my, was my son, my stepson. He is my stepson, by the way. And, um, you know, it, it, I've actually coached players, and I've coached their sons. I mean, Bobby Parks, Ray Ray Parks. Yeah. Bong Ravenna, Keeper Ravenna. Um, in the case of Chris, being he's my, my stepson, he hit a shot that was just probably my biggest shot at Santa Lucia. I mean, it won us a championship against my old team, San Miguel. And you now I remember when I first joined Santa Lucia, if I can tell this story real quick, I met with um, Danny Espiritu, well-known agent, even though he still looks like he's in his, his 40s or his You're 30s. right. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually been around for a long, long time. And, and Buddy Encarnado. And I remember Buddy asking me, all I really want you to do, if you can, is just win a championship for the franchise, um, which was Santa Lucia. So that was a great moment. Not, to, not just the fact that we won the championship, but the fact that my son <laughs> made the shot to beat San Miguel for that championship series. And you know, that was just a great experience. Uh, XC Robles was a great boss. And I was so happy for him that he could actually get that first championship. And, and you, know, you look, look back on those things and those are proud moments um, that you've gone through in your career. And you guys are bringing all these moments back now. I don't think about these things very often <laughs> we're, anymore. We're the right group to bring it all back, right? <laughs> yeah, because with Santa Lucia, the year before, we actually played San Miguel in the championship. And we lost to them. We had Ansu Cisse, who was, who was the best import, yeah. as our import. And we actually lost to them four games to two. And then um, the following year, we played them again in the championship. And this time around, we, we win the championship. So, uh that was, that was a great experience for me. I mean, it's, it's with San Miguel, we were winning championship with one team, but now all of a sudden I transferred to another team and I was able to win a championship with a brand new team. So that was, that was a good experience for me and a good accomplishment. Coach, I asked this question uh, of Coach Jong last week, and I'm going to ask uh, it to you now. Who was the toughest uh, coach you had to go up against in the PBA? Oh, <laughs> Is there any question, Tim Cohn? He's the one I've been losing to the <laughs> last three That's what Coach John also <laughs> <Yeah>. said. <laughs> He's the one winning all the championships. He's the one with 22, isn't it? 22 championships. And, uh, and counting. It's, it's interesting about coaching, though, because you also have to be a little bit lucky. Well, speaking of John Uchichiko, you know John was my assistant coach also, right? Yes, I yes. Uh, hired John in his first job in the PBA. A lot of people think he first worked for, for Ron Jacobs. Yeah, yeah. He actually – he. He was under me. I was the one that brought him from, I think it was Zobel. Uh, Zobel. Yeah, that's, yes, cool. that's right. Yeah. That's right. There, and um, he joined me with the, uh, the San Miguel coaching staff. And the reason why I did that is because he actually played for me back in the old PABL. He was the captain of the Magnolia team with Derek. Yeah, and right. Was right. And I remembered him as being a leader and a guy who had a, a great character. And, and, and we brought him in for, for that. Um, when it comes to coaching, there are a lot of guys who are really talented, but they don't really get the breaks as far as the players are concerned. Because no matter what you say, no matter how great a coach you think you are, if you don't have players, you ain't winning. Because I know as a player, once the game starts, the coach doesn't have too much to do with that game anymore. It's how many points I'm going to score, how many rebounds I'm going to grab, how many assists I'm going to get, how many blocks I'm going to get. The players on the court are going to decide the game. The coaches make big decisions. They substitute. They call plays. You know, they, they do their, their thing also. It's their job. But the players are the ones that actually go out there and win the 
games for you. The coaches take the blame. The players win the games. That's what it, it comes down to as far as I'm concerned. In college, when I coached at the nail, okay, I always thought Leo Austria was a great coach. And I think Leo might have beat me one time in college. And we coached against each other maybe five or six years in college. So I saw him a lot at, at, at Adamson. But all of our games were a struggle. You know, he would put on like one, two, two press and two, two, one press and you know, half court press, full court press. His offense was always elaborate. It's not like today where he just throws the ball to Jumar and everybody. <laughs> Back at Adams, and he had all kinds of plays, you know, that he had to study for and be prepared for. He was a good coach in college, but he just never had the players to go along with it. You saw what you see what happens, happens is happening now when he's now that he has the players. He's winning games. So in the case of Tim, myself, and some of the other coaches, Yang Gao, we've been a little bit lucky too that we've coach really good players yeah we probably have skills as, as a coach but at the same time you know the players are the ones that are getting us over the hump and, and giving us that recognition as being good coaches and and I truly believe that I mean that's why I always have respect not just for guys who win championships but for guys who have teams that probably aren't as talented but they still have some success uh, Joe Lieber would be a perfect example of that he could always take an average team and make them good I don't know if you guys agree with me or not, or not but I always oh, I agree. Over. We're from UP. We're all from, we're all from UP. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had the greatest talent, but he was always able to get the best out of the talent that he had. And then, uh, hey. well, yeah, finally, Coach, uh, you know, we want uh, just one last question. Um, could you name the five greatest players you've ever coached? Wow, that's that's hard. You're gonna <laughs> top of the head. Hey, one of the quickest, the quickest five names that come into your head. Well, number one, Mon Fernandez. Even though the time that I coached Mon, you know, he was a little bit older already, um, but he was still great as a player. Um, Ricky Brown, probably the of most course. productive player I've ever coached. I mean, he could just put the points and the assists on the board for you, and you add in a few steals to help. Uh, he, he was a really, really good player. Hector um, Kama, and he may not have the statistics of some of the other players. There you go. But just made Charlie very happy. This is the story <laughs> I always tell about Hector. I can. We have a moment here. Okay. Hector was the most quiet guy you ever want to meet. Um, he didn't really say too much. He didn't really talk a lot. And he wasn't the type of player that you could really, like an Alvin Ting, I could say anything to him during practice, and Alvin would just say, okay, coach, okay, coach. You know, Hector, you couldn't do that to him. You'd be better off pulling Hector to the side and telling him individually what you wanted to tell him and not yell at him and things like that. But once he got on the basketball court, and I think all of the players that played with us during those great years at San Miguel back in the 80s and 90s will tell you this. We knew who the boss was on the court. Hector Kama was the boss. When he told you to do something, you better do it. He had some, he had some fire in him that would say, I am the, and maybe it was a little bit because I always used to tell him, you are the coach on the floor. If something goes wrong, I'm going to look at you first. So, he maintained organization on that basketball court. And when people looked at him, they knew he was going to lead them. And they knew if he told you to do something, hey, just do it. If I'm the smallest player on the court, just do it. I'm telling you to do it. Just get it done. And that's the type of respect he had from the players. So Hector would, would definitely be, be one of those. I, you know, I'm a little bit guard heavy. Uh, I, I would go with Otto Augustine. I'm sorry. I mean, Otto was just a great player. I don't think he gets enough. I guess he does get a lot of credit because he was part of the, the first top 25 players of all time. But I'll tell you this story real quick. I played against Otto in this all-star game, okay? And um, it, it was a game of the PABL players versus San Miguel. Okay, the players that were coming from the NCC squad and going to the PBA already. And we went up against this, this, this all-star team from the PABL. And Otto just killed us. He just lit us up. I mean, he just, 
I knew immediately this guy was going to be a star. And I was so lucky, very similar to how I think I'm very lucky with Bon Kinto right now with the Moralco team. Because we actually chose Bobby Jose as our first round pick. Yeah, I remember. And we chose Otto Augustine in the second round. And it was pretty obvious, particularly when Ricky Brown and Hector started having their injuries, that Otto Augustine was going to be the star of our team. He's one of the greatest. I always say Bong, Bong Kinto is probably one of the best second-round picks ever. Well, Otto Augustine probably is the best second-round pick ever in the history of the PBA. The fact that he went on to become the MVP of the league would tell you something like that. And then I have to get one more. Uh, you're saying guys that I played with or guys that I coached? Um, you might be a little bit shocked about this one. And I'm going to do this because I'm trying to form a team here. Can I have six guys? <laughs> If I can have six, sure, I'm better sure, off. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So I'll take Sam Boylem just because of his impact on the game and the fact that he, he was our fast break. <laughs> you know, him and Albert Elmer Reyes were our fast breaks. Um, and the last player I would take, and this, this is a guy that I, you, you might, you know, um, I, I coached um, Marlo Aquino. I coached uh, Dennis Espino. I've, I've actually coached Nelson Asaitono, Nick Velasco, Ali Peak. I've coached some really, really good players, big guys over the years. But I was really in love with Ibis Dignadise. Um, you know, Ibis had my back. Because remember, when Ibis was there, I was still a player. And if I didn't guard the other import, Ibis was the one guarding him. He had my back. He wasn't going to put the points on the board like some of these other players, but he could defend anybody. And that's one of the reasons why he was a mainstay in the national team during those 1980, 1980 runs um, and towards the beginning of 1990. So, yeah, those would be some of the guys I would choose. I'm sure I'm missing somebody. You know, I'll the San Miguel All Stars. Talk about the San Miguel All Stars. I was about to say, yeah, all the players you go, you you picked were your players from the late 80s and early 90s run with San the Grand Slam practically. Remember, also Coach Alan Kayadik, huh? Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's a lot of guys. Uh, Alan. And you did, you did play, you did play with Boggs, right? You played with Boggs other now in Alaska. I right? played with Boggs, but I never coached him. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. I know that was supposed to be the last question, but we had a recent development, and I just want to get your thoughts on Randy Del Campo hanging them up already right now. Um, he's a surefire Hall of Famer one of these days. Talk about your relationship with Brandon Dell and his impact in the game. Yeah, well, first of all, Coach, were you surprised that he made that announcement yesterday? Yeah. Well, I didn't know when he was going to make the announcement, but he had already informed myself and, and Paulo Trillo back at the beginning of the year that there was a possibility this could happen. That's why he was not part of our lineup going into the season. And we know, at least the people within the team know that ranadel has been having problems with um, health issues and also with injuries and he's been toying around with this idea because of course you know he's had a long storied career uh, better than most and he's got to worry about his health too because eventually we do get old and we don't want to have arthritis or knee replacements or hip replacements as we get older so um in his case i did know a little bit about it but i did not know that he would announce it yesterday or two days ago. I did not know that. He did not inform me of that. And, you know, I've been with Brandadell a long time. I've won four championships with Brandadell, three under coach Chuck Reyes, where I was consultant for the team or basically an assistant coach under Chuck. And, and of course, once when I was the head coach of the Talking Text team. And um, he's probably the best stretch four we've ever seen. You know, the only one I think can come close, but I don't know whether I can put him in that category because he didn't really shoot a lot of threes. It was probably Danny Siegel. You know, Danny Siegel was a guy that could score from the perimeter. You know, he was not, he was similar to me. He wasn't a three-point shooter, but he wasn't getting all layups either. He was taking 18-footers, 20-footers, 15-footers. And Ranadell was a guy who could really stretch the floor for you. And he kind of came along, his talent came along at the right time because it's the way the game is played now. It's the way it's played. The, the four-man can stretch the floor and get out and shoot threes for you. Now, Ranadell's um, advantage was he's also he was also very athletic, so he could get to the basket and score around the hoop, too. He had a nice little jump hook. He could get around the hoop and score layups on you. Sometimes he could dunk on you. And he was a mainstay in, in the national team because of his ability to get out there and shoot threes and bring the big men out from the <laughs> And on the other end, he was strong enough to be able to hold his own underneath the basket. 
and he was physical enough, and I would say sometimes dirty enough to <laughs> to not take any crap off of anybody. Oh so, yes, uh, yeah. He got his he got his share of uh, deliberate fouls over the years. There's no question about that. <laughs> but um, I'm happy for him. Um, of course, we're sad to see him retire, as we all have to retire one day, right? It happens with players. This is a young man's sport when it comes to basketball players, and I think he's had a great career, something to really be proud of. I'm happy to have worked with him. I'm happy to have won four championships with him. And, of course, I wish him the best of luck, he and his family. Great. Okay, Coach, we won't keep you uh, any much longer. Any longer Thank you yeah. so much for joining so us. Much. Amazing. Rami Salamik, guys, anytime, huh? Yeah, we Thank learned so much. We can, so we, can have a, we can have a part two. Have more <laughs> stories about we'll do it in the 80s. <laughs> next, time, next time we do it in Tagalog, huh? Okay. Walang problema. I'll send you a link. Salamat, to the, uh, the article right. and the, uh, the videos. All right. Take care, guys. All right. Thank you, coach. Stay safe. All right. Thank you, coach. All right. You too, coach. See you. See you soon. All right. Okay, guys. Stay safe, everyone. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. That concludes this episode of An Eternity of Basketball. As a reminder, for this show and other shows like it, as well as projects like it, go to globallyballin.com, as well as follow Globally Ballin on all social media, including facebook.com slash globallyballin, Twitter at globallyballin, and Instagram at globallyballinofficial. If there is someone that you would like to hear from on this show, send us a message on any of our social media platform. Your patronage is truly a blessing. Stay safe and tune in next time for another episode of An Eternity of Basketball. Thank you.